you have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from LAist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes too when you donate now at laist.com sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS in Pasadena for a morning of multilingual readings, interactive performances, and lots of kid fun. It's Super Fun Saturday on June 1st. Get your tickets at LAS.com slash events. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at Elias.com slash sweeps. Start your Saturday with something that will grow your kiddos' brains and get their creative juices flowing. Join us at LAS for a morning of multilingual story times, interactive performances, art making, and lots of kid fun. Bring the whole fam and join us for a super fun Saturday at LAS in Pasadena on June 1st. Tickets at LAS.com slash events. See you there. We're going to do that. Hi, excuse me. Hi, do you live in the area? Yes, I do. Think of your home. Can we ask you some questions? We're journalists. Sure. Where you chose to live. Nice to meet you. Nice meeting you. Ty- what's your last name? Jordan. Tyrone Jordan? Mm-hmm. Where, and whereabouts do you live around here? Where are we right, right now? Right up the street. We're in uh, unincorporated Palmdale. What sorts of risks did you take on living there? For you, when you were choosing a home, was it kind of like you got to live somewhere? Or, I mean, what was no, the... No, not at all. Um... My wife and I were look. We were looking for a home. I was driving around, and I wound up here one day, and I found the house. So I called her, then I called our realtor. I said, "Y'all need to come see this house." When she came and saw it, we both said the same thing: "Hey, this is it. You know, we're we're in town, but we're off away from town. So we're just like minutes down the road to get to anything that we would need. But up here, we're kind of secluded from the rest of the city. So." Maybe you have devastating tornadoes that just miss your city once in a while. Maybe hundred-year floods that no number of sandbags can stop. Maybe fires that could destroy any memory that your town was once there. And so we're actually taking a look at the lake and the fact that the San Andreas Fault runs right here. Yeah. (laughs) Do you know that the San Andreas Fault runs like right, we're like basically standing on it? Yeah. Does that worry you at all? No. Why? I, I came through the, the Northridge quake, and uh, I can't worry about it. You know, this is my home. I chose it, so mm-hmm. we'll have to hope that it's not as bad as it sounds it's like it's going to be. Uh, do, I mean, do you ever think about it? I don't think about it. Because if you think about it, then you worry yourself to death, right? <laughs> He's got a big home, a lot of space. They overlook a scenic lake. It's a 1,000 yards from the San Andreas Fault. The big one will be really bad for him and his family. But are they really any crazier than the rest of us? We know the big one is coming. After the quake, you won't know when the power will come back on, when the water will be safe to drink, when you'll get fresh food again, when the shaking will stop. You could lose everything. The truth is... 
the biggest decisions you'll have to make aren't before or during the quake. They're after. Do you stay, grit it out, try to rebuild for months and months, maybe years? Or do you say, I've hit my limit, and go? Will you even have a choice? I'm Jacob Margolis, and this is The Big One. Episode 4, The Choice. Last night, you and your family slept on your lawn, some random tent you bought a couple years ago. You filled it with blankets, you laid down, and after all the chaos of the day, you slept like it was a five-star hotel. This morning, you get your first look at the house in daylight. Dishes shattered. Nothing's in your fridge. It's all over the floor. The TV and that credenza you never secured to the wall tipped over. No power, no water. At least your house isn't on fire like all the others. You've already eaten the fruits and vegetables. The only things left are pickles, canned food, and some bread. You walk back outside with food for Omar and Layla. How did you guys sleep? It's your neighbor, Elle, who also slept in her backyard with her two boys. I can't get over the smell. Broken clay sewage pipes opened up. Shits streaming out. And the aftershocks? I feel like the earthquake never stopped. You own your house. So you're asking yourself things like, how do I put everything back together? What's it going to cost me? Am I going to have to pay my mortgage, my insurance, my utility bills? Elle's in a different situation. She rents a townhouse across the street that's in bad shape. It's a broken wall and she can see through to her backyard. She's been trying to get a hold of her landlord since the quake hit. She asks you to walk around her house and take pictures on your phone because you have some battery left. I want to document all the damage. There's no running water. That wall is beyond repair. I mean, I don't even know if the house is going to hold up in the next aftershock. There's no way I'm paying rent. One of the basic tenets of being a landlord is that your unit has to be habitable. So if if the unit is not considered habitable for living, then they are not able to collect rent. My name is Yasmin Guzman, and I am the Director of Media Outreach and Education at the Housing Rights Center. Habitable means access to hot and cold running water, that the unit is weatherproof, that plumbing works, electrical works. If things are bad enough after the big one, you might be able to legally withhold rent, to postpone paying it, or to leave your place. After making sure they and their families are safe, a landlord has to reach out to their tenants. Making sure you make every effort to to establish that contact and to document that that, that effort was made. Because at the end of the day, it is, it is your business and it is um, your tenants and, and units that you're responsible for. Elle's out of here. Her landlord still hasn't called back. She's taking her kids to stay with family in San Jose. Luckily, the 101 North is open. They might only be letting emergency vehicles through. Even if you could get out, you know you don't have enough gas. 
Your Subaru is close to empty, and your wife's car? She said she used the last of her tank just getting home yesterday. Elle's better prepared. She even has extra gas cans. I drove over to the gas station at like 6 this morning to fill up, thinking the earlier the better. But it still took me over an hour. You help her lift a few boxes into her car. She's leaving so much behind. Your stomach growls. You pull Elle and her daughter in for a hug, high-five her son, and pull him in too. Keep me updated. Around the clock to put out the fires and continue search and rescue efforts. If you're just now joining us, yesterday's 7.8 magnitude quake was the largest our region has seen in 45 years. Seismologists are saying that more aftershocks will happen. They advise if you are safe where you are, stay there. Shelter in place. Reporter Angela Cross Smith was at the Operation Command Center downtown this morning. Angela, what did you see out there? There's a lot of debris, a lot of abandoned cars. It's hard to get around. Workers tagging certain sections of freeways and overpasses as unsafe. The fire seems to be the priority right now. A lot of the city resources are going into managing those. You wave goodbye to Ellen and her kids. You feel a little lonelier, stuck. Maybe you and your family should pack up and leave too. You walk back across the street to your house. Your wife, Layla, is eating protein bars with Omar still sitting in the backyard. She's been scared to go back inside. She looks up at you. This is probably the last thing you want to hear, but we're almost out of water. There's no water coming from your tap. You need one gallon per person per day. You grab some empty jugs and you take a walk to look for some. The small store at the corner of the street is empty, but a couple of blocks away you run into a guy who says he's got water coming out of his hose. His house is a mess, too. Looks like it burned a bit. He tells you to be careful with the water. He's not sure it's safe to drink. There will be a boil water notice issued probably throughout all of Southern California, probably to all 18 million people. That's Craig Davis, Chief Resilience Officer at the L.A. Department of Water and Power. You may still get water. But upstream somewhere outside of your house, could be in your front, just outside your front yard in the street, there's broken pipes. Just because the pipe's leaking doesn't mean it's still not flowing water, right? So it could be leaking. Now it's exposed. And if there's also, if the water pipe can break, the sewer pipe can break. Mm -hmm. And there's also the contaminants in the streets and so on. We don't know if those contaminants can enter into the pipe. The water can still come to your house, but we can't guarantee that it meets public health standards. It's a little tough to boil water when there's no electricity or gas. It's something that a lot of people in Southern California should worry about. There are about 7,000 miles of water pipes in the city alone. Most of them weren't made to withstand an earthquake. LADWP has extra pipes stored so that they can fix things, but it could take months. On top of that, it's not just the pipes we've got to worry about. Remember, we import nearly all of our water, which passes over the San Andreas. Its rupture would actually break through all of the aqueducts, which supplies the city of Los Angeles 85% of its water supply on an annual basis. And if 85% of our water supply gets cut off, that's a problem. Luckily, We've got 15% stored on this side of the fault. Craig Davis says that's enough water to last six months. 
And if it looks like supplies are low, they can impose strict rationing to stretch it out. So the Metropolitan Water District uh, believes that they can get their Colorado River aqueduct, they own and operate that aqueduct, uh, back into service uh, within a year, but they uh, have plans that are underway to bring that down to six months, which would be great. Uh, for the Los Angeles aqueducts, we actually pierce the San Andreas Fault in a five-mile-long tunnel that's nine feet wide. So that rapture will exceed the nine feet width of that tunnel. So we're estimating right now that uh, if it were to occur today, that might be 18 months. And the East Branch of the California Aqueduct crosses many times, unfortunately, back and forth it crosses. So the, the California Department of Water Resources, who owns and operates that aqueduct, is not certain how long it would take, but it's somewhere between six months to two years. In 2014, Lucy Jones and Mayor Garcetti released a bunch of recommendations to secure our water system in case of a big earthquake. They said that we need to strengthen our aqueducts, make our dams stronger, seismically reinforce our pipes, and find and store more water locally. So we have a program to replace all of our pipes, all 7,000 miles over the next 120 years. So we are re-envisioning what a water system can look like, and we're rebuilding it with the pipes that we need for the future rather than continuing with the pipes that we've had in the past. It's been four years since these citywide recommendations and 10 years since the shakeout. So are we moving fast enough for this problem? Uh, we're moving as fast as reasonably possible. And, and, and I'll explain. So you can't go dig up 7,000 miles of pipe and put it in in a year. It's just impossible. You can't do that in a decade. It took us 100 years to get there. It takes a long time to get them replaced. So it is, we have already figured out the most feasible and effective way to replace our pipes, regardless of seismic resistance. And that's going to take us 120 years. Do we have another 120 years? Alaist has a new live event series with the James Beard Foundation. We Are Where We Eat will go behind the scenes of some of your favorite L.A. restaurants to find out how and why they do what they do. I'm Austin Cross. Join me for the first event where we'll explore how restaurants help make a neighborhood and we'll all have something delicious to eat afterwards. It's May 22nd at the Crawford. Get your tickets now at LAist.com events. The journalists of LAist work for you. I'm LAist correspondent Frank Stoltz. With Democracy at a Crossroads, my job is to cover civics and democracy from the voters' perspective. I examine who holds power, how they wield it, and how that affects all of us across Southern California. LAist. Independent journalism. Fact-based journalism. You're walking to the grocery store with Layla and Omar. You hope there's still food and water. One of the older guys in your neighborhood said, 
kind of just giving things away now. In, in a major earthquake, um, there's going to be a lot of donations very early on. Uh, you probably do not have communications. We're probably not running credit cards. Um, we're probably just, you know, in survival mode. Uh, yes, my name is Wesley Morris. I'm a market manager for Walmart. I've been with Walmart for 28 years, been in California for 14 years. A lot of the things in stores are perishable. That's what they'll give away first, because otherwise, they'll rot. So if you go to Hurricane Katrina, in some cases, they were handing out shoes to people because they just didn't have any. Um, and so in, in the very early hours, uh, you're not worried about those sales, but you're worried about taking care of those customers. It's not all altruism, though. Companies also get a tax write-off. Your feet are sore, your arms hurt from carrying cases of water, your kid sits down to take a break. It's stuffed with peanut butter and jelly and everything else you could fit in there. Omar, we've got to get home. I'll carry it for now. You're 20 minutes away from the house. Again. You crouch down and cover your heads. This time it's not that bad. It's only a small one. You keep walking, and you pass a large apartment building. It was actually the first place you and your wife lived together. But it looks different than you remember. Oh, shit. You realize that what used to be four stories is now just three. Layla picks him up. You tell her, put him down. He can walk. He's too big for you to carry him the whole way back. It's fine. I don't mind carrying him. You tell her, he's not a baby. Put him down. Layla keeps holding him. I don't like ocean. When we get home, we're leaving. I can't be here for another aftershock. I can't be scrounging for supplies. He's freaking out, and I'm freaking out. You ask her, where do you want us to go? With what gas? What supplies? I don't care. Look at him. Omar isn't crying anymore. His head's on her shoulder, and he's staring at what's left of the building. I didn't even want to live here. We moved here for your stupid family, and I shouldn't have even given in so quick. You want to admit you're worried, but you're too stubborn. You tell Layla that you get it, that we need to stay. We need to fix the house, our home. I'm not going to stick around and watch this city go to hell. Everywhere you go, bad things could happen. Christy Taylor lives with her four kids and her husband in Florida. And there's always that threat living down here. You know, there was there's always that possibility. So the people who live down here and have been here their whole lives, no one was worried. So we figured, well, they're not worried. (laughs) I live in Panama City, uh, really close to Callaway. It was on Wednesday, October 10th. Hurricane Michael. Hurricane Michael tore through her city last year. It was one of the most violent hurricanes ever to hit the East Coast. Have you ever been really, really close to an airplane? Like an airplane flew right over your head um, at an airport or something, and and that loud, loud noise. That's the only thing I could think to compare it to because I've never experienced anything like it before, but it was like a whoosh, and it was just, it it never ended though. It didn't, you know, stop with a whoosh, you know. (laughs) As the hurricane bears down on them, 
Christy and her family make a series of choices. They decide to head to a church down the street that they think has been built to withstand a Category 4 hurricane, and that if they need help, people will be there. But when they get there, the building's empty. They choose to hunker down in the kitchen because they think it'll be the safest place. And then, the winds get really strong. It just sounded like it was ripping the building apart. I I was scared. I'd never, I mean, the scariest part was I can't protect my kids from this. There's nothing I can do right now to make them safe. All I can do is hold on to them, and we were praying. They crawl under a giant oak table. Um, The kids were just crying and saying, are we going to die? I'm scared. So we prayed, and then we started singing. And we sang a lot of songs and very loudly trying to drown out the noise. And we could just, again, you could hear it ripping pieces off the building. It broke the glass right outside the door where we were in the kitchen that time. And so my husband pushed the refrigerator in front of the door and then got back under the table. And um, we just continued to sing. They climb out from underneath the table, walk into the kitchen and into the main hall. There was broken glass on everywhere. We walked out and and looked up and the entire front of the church was just gone. They think there's no way our house made it. They leave the church and drive back to their neighborhood to check. There's a lot of debris in the street. Houses without roofs, walls gone. They can't see their house from the road. There's down trees in the way. Her husband has to climb up and over them just so he can see what's going on. And he said when he, he saw our house, he hit his knees because he said, you know, maybe 2% of the houses he passed from the church to our home were livable. 2%. Goodness gracious. See how trees are snapped off in places. They're twisted and uprooted. It's kind of like a, a tornado except the houses people on the road, everybody pitched in. Everybody, I mean, before the National Guard even arrived, before any help of that kind, everybody who lived here got their chainsaws out, got their tractors out, got anything they had and just started trying to clear the roads. But we spent the next few days just, it's a new normal because you don't have water to do dishes. But um, we're lucky that we own the lot next to us which has a deep well pump and the water just pours from it constantly. Now, we have to carry it a little ways back to the house, but we would just take pots and pans and jugs and fill them up and bring them back over to the house. And my husband would build a little fire and he would cook food. He would heat water in big pots for us so we could still get, you know, lukewarm or, you know, (laughs) shower in the evening. You just pour it over your head. (laughs) So we actually, the very first night we were home, we had beef stew because we had beef um, in the fridge. So we cut it up and we had potatoes and carrots. That was probably our best meal (laughs) for the next 20 days. (laughs) A month in, Christy and her five family members are without power, water, and internet. You can't get away from it. You can't just close your eyes, you know, and open them again and it's back to normal. It's gonna be years before our town is rebuilt. We stayed because this this is our community, this is our home, our neighbors, our friends, our church. And they were lucky. They have the money to be able to stay or go. 
if I would put myself in our neighbor's situation, and by the way, our neighbors are back. They bought a camper with what little money they could scrape together. And I think FEMA gave them a little bit for like living expenses, you know, as much as they've lost and as little as they have, they're, they're still here. Um, but yes, I do believe that knowing that financially we will be okay did play a part in us staying. If we had lost everything and didn't have insurance or didn't have any savings, that would have been made it much harder to stay, especially because our family members said, come back north, come on up here. You can, had we lost everything and the kids not had a home to sleep in, yes, I believe we would have had to. You, you don't have a lot of options when your kids, you know, your kids need a roof over their heads. They need to be able to, you know, have some sense of normalcy. <laughs> You're home, sitting outside, it's warm breeze, smell of smoke. Omar's asleep in the tent, and you and Layla are drinking the only bottle of wine that didn't shatter. I was just freaking out. Tell her that she's not totally wrong, and that maybe you should get out of town sometime in the next couple weeks. Maybe stay with her family in Philly for a bit. Things are moving quickly in the recovery effort in Southern California. The good news is that Governor Newsom approved sending in the National Guard. We've already seen a few emergency tents set up in some of the worst hit areas, but it's going to take a while to get supplies in to help everyone affected. Residents with structural damage to their homes will have additional shelters open up in the coming days as well. And eventually, they'll be able to get their $500 benefits for food and supplies from FEMA. We've seen that roads in and out of the region are blocked. Does that make things harder? You notice some broken glass in the corner of your dining room. You grab a broom, walk over, and start sweeping. As a farmer's son from a desert region in California, J.B. Hamby thinks a lot about water. I spent a lot of time digging up history, particularly about water, which is the origins of the Imperial Valley. How this 28-year-old became the youngest lead negotiator on the Colorado River ever. And how he could shape the most consequential negotiations to date. Listen to Imperfect Paradise, the Gen Z water dealmaker, wherever you get podcasts. Hi, I'm Tracy Thomas, host of One for the Books, and we are back for another round. This is clearly an NPR audience. (laughs) I think they're so smart. What the hell? My guests this time are actor Vela Lavelle and author Amanda Montel, whose new book, The Age of Magical Overthinking, is out now. Join us on May 15th at the Crawford Family Forum for book talk, trivia, and hot takes. Tickets can be found at laist.com slash events. Now, you're not going to believe this, but it takes a ton of people to make this show, including Misha Youssef, our lead producer, Arwen Champion-Nix, our executive producer, Mary Knopf, our assistant producer, and Megan Garvey, our editor. Our music's by Andy Clausen. Andy, you are a mensch. 
Our engineers who have to deal with all my weird mouth sounds are Sean Corey Campbell and Valentino Rivera. Our design work is by Stephanie Kraft. This episode was written and reported by Misha Youssef, Arwen Nix, Mary Knopf, and me, Jacob Margolis. Special thanks to all of our actors who did such a good job, including Taylor Kaufman, Mildred Langford, Rick Esparza, Tom Masterson, Bianca Ramirez, and Jennifer Boffman. Our matriarch of marketing is Alex Laughlin. And thanks to James Kim for teaching me love, patience, pain. I'm your host, Jacob Margolis. Thanks for listening. Hey, Big One listener. It's me, Misha, your lead producer for The Big One. If you're still in LA after listening to four episodes, we've got some tips for you. Number one. Paper is the greatest thing in the world. I know it kills trees, but if the internet is not working or if your nav system in your car is not working after a big earthquake, if you've printed out copies of the map of Los Angeles, it could really come in handy. So print out copies of the map of Los Angeles and use a colored marker to outline the route from your house to your work, from your kid's school and your partner's work. And if you've all decided on a meeting point, then from all of your places, to that meeting point. Put a copy in each of your cars, give one to your kid's teacher, and keep one in your and your kid's bag at all times. Number two, Airbnb has something called open homes for disaster survivors. It's free temporary housing. If you're in need of a place to stay after the earthquake and have access to the internet, check out airbnb.com slash open homes. And if your house is in good shape, you can also volunteer your place. Number three, make sure you know where your fire extinguishers are at home and at work and watch some YouTube videos to figure out how they work. If you're too lazy to Google it, here's the quick tip. Pull, aim, squeeze, sweep. Tip number four, the days of not knowing your girlfriend's phone number are gone. If you want to be able to reach the people you love after the disaster, memorize some phone numbers like the olden days in case your phone doesn't work and have an out-of-state contact. Tip number five, have all your important documents in order. Make sure your ID is up to date with your current address or that you can prove that you live in your home. Put all these things in a safe box because fires are going to be raging like crazy. And if you can pay for it, have a backup on the cloud. Don't die in an earthquake, everyone. See you next week.